just invite you to take us from where we left off and go even further. Hmm. It's a pity to stop with worship, but oh, thank goodness we can live a lifestyle of it. Oh, so we just continue with that lifestyle and might as well just continue going from deeper to deep from this point onwards for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Wee. Invade us. Mm. Make us realize quite how close you are. <laughs> Make yourself crystal clear. Remove all the obstacles that we've built in our minds. We. For anybody who has never experienced you, let them experience you right now. If you've never experienced the Holy Spirit before, just know that he is very near and you don't need to do anything to make him nearer. All you gotta do is just believe that he is near. And then from that place, <laughs> uh, it doesn't need to look a particular way. Don't put any expectations on it. Just believe. And then look out for it. There might be a tingle in your fingers. There might be a warmth in your body. Maybe an image comes into your head. Maybe a peace just starts to fill you. Whatever it is, look to that because that is the Holy Spirit moving in you. Yeah, Holy Spirit, just let us ride this wave because that's what we're here for this morning. It's all well and nice having somebody who's got the good gift of the gab, but at the end of the day, the main thing is you. So let us just be focused on you. (laughs) Right, okay. That okay does not mean you stop being in the place you just were. I'm not transitioning away from that. I'm going to spend all of eternity in that place, so you know you might as well get used to it now. <laughs> uh, eternity starts now. Whee! Woo! Okay. So um, when I got the text to ask me what I was going to talk about today, I um, kind of knew within five minutes I'm going to move this here. Is that better? Less boomy? Yeah, that's less boomy. Good. Thanks, JL. If JL nods, I know I'm doing it right. Um, so when I was asked to talk, I knew pretty much in five minutes what to talk about, um, which essentially was the gospel, plain and simple. That one. Um, so I just kind of got God saying, like, say it straight, say. Just tell us what the gospel is. Um, those were the words that I got. And in one regard, that seems pretty straightforward, right? It's like the gospel is kind of shapes and turns everything that we do. Um, it's probably the, the fundamental key. It infuses everything we do. So surely it should be relatively easy to articulate. But that's the thing. The most pervasive... You can pick that up, Lydia. That's all right. Um, the, the most pervasive... The most intrinsic parts of any community, culture, worldview are often the hardest things to point your finger on because they're so 
embedded in everything that you do. So, um, you know, there's a reason we don't just have one John 3.16. Not one John, just John 3.16. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who would, would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Ace one-liner, but we have more than that. We have the whole Bible, and then within the Bible, you've got four accounts of the gospel. <laughs> so despite the fact that one line is really, really helpful, there's a big, expansive, cosmic thing about the gospel. Um, and so while I knew what I, wanted to, what I needed to talk about within five minutes, it took me until about Wednesday of this week to actually figure out how to articulate it. <laughs> and I got asked, like, I don't know, a month and a half ago or something like that. Um, you know, the gospel isn't just a pervasive ideology. Um, it's not just pervasive in a culture or in this community. But the gospel I've fallen in love with and I've committed my life to, um, that's, that, that it did something to the cosmos. Um, it did something to all creation. It's pervasive in every inch of the human condition. You can hear its echoes in every single story that we tell ourselves. Um, It's so vast and so big. And I think it's the pleasure of the human experience to figure out its meaning. That's what we're here for. So you spend a lifetime figuring out what the gospel is. Um, (laughs) But I don't have a lifetime. I've got 30 minutes. (laughs) So uh, let's figure it out. (laughs) <laughs> this time around, yes. I have a lifetime, yes, but to communicate it to you guys, I'm going to put a timer on right now, actually. Just help me out. Start. 30 minutes. <laughs> the gospel, the good news, the evangelion, is so vast in its build-up, in its consequences, in its makeup, that... You know, it can't just be explained in words. It needs to be experienced. Um, The gospel and the kingdom of God are very closely tied together and you can't experience the kingdom of God without experiencing power. Um, So, the best way to experience power is to start off with risk. So let's take a risk. Um, Right. Did anybody come in here (laughs) with any pain in their body? And if you pay attention to it now, have you found that maybe a little bit of it has diminished, even just a tad? Just during worship, anything? No? When um, we were in France for a ministry trip, there was a lady who had had 10 years worth of chronic back pain. Um, had like 10 different um, medications that she had to take to sort of deal with that chronic back pain. And um, she was prayed for at the front and was completely healed. Like, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes the story, because you're bombarded with testimony after testimony in a culture like this, it can become a little bit, like, you know, 
um, same old, same old, but 10 years of a person's life of chronic back pain. There's 10 different drugs that you need to take in order just to deal with it. That doesn't really get rid of the pain entirely, but just helps you deal with it. And suddenly, overnight, just done. Ay, ay, ay. And so she stayed up all night. Um, <laughs> nice. um, and um, six months later, Jan McFarlane went back to her and um, her knees and diabetes has all been healed. Again, frickin' diabetes. That's not a fun thing to have. Insulin and all of that sort of stuff. And suddenly you spent the last few years needing to care about all of this stuff and suddenly you're freed from that. And then she prayed for another guy for eyesight. And uh, what was it? Heart condition. And he was healed. So, did anybody arrive here with any sort of pain in their body at all before worship? And is there anything that has kind of sorted itself out for you, diminished at all? You don't need to pretend, by the way. This isn't a, a thing. But at the same time, you know, you can step into these things a little bit. And if you do feel any twinkly, any heat where there might have been a bit of the pain or anything like that, and again, just kind of show that the Holy Spirit is doing something. Um, cool. Does it, the name David, being born, uh, either being born or living in Abafeldi, mean anything to anyone? No? Cool. Um, my sense of identity is not dependent on you responding, so don't worry. You don't need to feel bad for me if nothing happens. We're just re taking a risk together. Um, is there a Jeff um, as a, like, has a, who's a, like a fireman or, want, or a kid who wants to be a fireman called Jeff at all? Anybody knows about? I know. I'm having a go at the specific ones here. Because, you know, it's more fun that way. Um, an Anna or a Kyle who suffers from migraines? No? The reason why I'm going for this is because the other day I was at HSSL and I got someone's name, their profession, and the fact that they were a parent. I was blown away by it and blown away by that, and I was just like, "Ah, well, you know, if it works once, Jesus will do it again." So I'm just going to go and, and continue having a go at these things. Um, so you know, because that is the way you get power um, is showing up in your life if you're willing to take a bit of a risk and look a bit like an oddball. But then again, I've never had a problem looking like an oddball. Um, cool. All right. I'm so glad the person who printed this off for me put numbers on this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Paulina. Um, okay. So, you know, the gospel needs to be a demonstration of power. Can't just be words. 
Um, so I look forward to hearing all of you guys who didn't put your hands up and go and get healed by to next week. <laughs> so, the gospel. I'm going to mention talk about a few things here. I think that are, I don't, don't know. We don't avoid talking about them because we don't live in fear, but we, they just don't come up very much. Sin. So the word sin is choked with historical baggage. You know, um, the mere fact that I just talked about it, I can feel like, ooh, hello. Um, you know, being a person who uses that word puts you immediately in a position where you must be a judgmental individual. Ah, you talked about sin. Oh dear. It's the word of the judges. It's the word of the religiously hypocritical. And it's kind of been hijacked by that. So, you know, nobody really wants to use that word because they don't want to... You want to love first and well, and you want to be given the opportunity to love someone. So you don't use that word because otherwise it just creates distance. But actually, we talk about it all the time. Um, sin, wrongdoing, breaking an important standard that must be upheld, destructive behaviors. You know, we don't not talk about those things. We just don't call it sin. Um, just don't use that word. The news revels in sin. The sins of other people sell excellently. Um, <laughs> now, normally when we think about sin, we, um, we think about actions, deeds, things that people do. But when you look at Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry, and only within the first five to seven chapters, Jesus is standing on a mountaintop, um, a direct mirror image of Moses standing on the top of a mountain, an echo of that. And like Moses, makes a whole bunch of moral and spiritual imperatives. Tells people, this are, these are commandments, these are, these are, uh, these are actions that um, we need to follow to be spiritually and morally pure. This important standard that must be upheld and in Moses' case, the Ten Commandments. And here Jesus tells us all who would hear that he doesn't just make a claim about actions, but thoughts as well, and mindsets. Despite the fact, you know, that he, um, he seemed to have broken laws about the Sabbath, um, you know, despite the fact that he was hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors, he was doing all the things that seemed to be like, you know, not the correct thing to do. There was no bone in Jesus' body that would reject Mosaic law. And, and in fact, what he did is he extrapolated it and he said, okay, it's not actually just about actions, it's about thoughts. Murder is not just the sin that you commit, it's simply thinking angrily about a brother. 1 Colossians 1, 21 to 22 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present to you holy and blameless and above reproach to him. So um, there's a relationship between what we think and what we do. And sin begins in the mind. 
Um, right, this is where the numbering system is going to get into favor because I have no idea what number three is. Yes, there it is. Ace. Likewise, in Ephesians 2 3, which um, Andy and I had extensive conversations about recently. The corruption that was in us from birth was expressed through the deeds and the desires of our self-life. We lived by whatever natural cravings and thoughts our minds dictated, living as rebellious children subject to God's wrath like everyone else. So sin is not just an action, it's not just an evil deed, but a mindset, a hostile mind. So we don't just do sin, we think it. And when we think it, we act it out. Now, street preachers will tell you all about the horrors of sin. I don't feel the need to do so. They say hell is waiting for those who embrace sin. Well, if heaven is at hand, I dare say it's here to cast out hell. Um, the Bible isn't afraid to use earthly references to make sense of hell. Um, Gehenna was a physical place and the New Testament talks about that. You know, hell is a Rwandan genocide. Um, hell is a lifetime of loneliness in a crowd. Hell is thoughts that incessantly tell you how awful you are and how unloved you are. You know, um, we don't need to look to the afterlife for that sort of reference. Um, you know, I, I personally, I think the definition of hell is simply you don't know how to love and be loved by God. You don't know how to love others and be loved by others and you don't know how to love yourself. That's why the commandments make it such an imperative. That's why everything in the commandments leads down to those three things. The absence of those three things is hell. But then what is the mindset that drives us to either inflict on ourselves or inflict on others hell? Another question. Let me ask you, what if God, this magnificent being, all-powerful, all-knowing, present everywhere, is good? The goodness of God, we can sometimes lose the magnificence of him. But it's actually the correlation between his magnificence and his goodness that makes him so incredible. Um, what if, despite all of the evidence that you would see in this life, all the ones that I've just mentioned above, descriptions of hell, God, the epicenter of all life, is good? And what if evil, the problem of evil, comes from an inability matched with an unwillingness to be loved and to love? You know, the first sin began with a conversation in which a creature told an almost divine being that it needed to be greater. That somehow this incredible divine being that had the breath of God breathed into it was less than it thought it was. In fact, there's a high chance that that being never even thought of itself as greater or less it simply was. The first human to compare herself to someone else the first human that believed it took an action to make herself something more than she already was. The first human to think that God 
didn't make entirely good things, but slightly subpar. The first person to act from a place where she thought she was in some sort of capacity separate from God. Now the awful thing about a lie is that if we believe it and it act on it, it is often our actions that make it seem true. It doesn't make it true, but it certainly makes it seem true. You know, the parable of the prodigal son shows us two men who believe they have less access and less things than they think they do. Both of them. One, because he's squandered it all. And the other, because he's filled himself with resentment. And a father who told them they both always had everything. I believe that the fundamental idea that drives sin is the idea that man is separated from God. And a big problem is not that that doesn't just remain an idea, but that then feeds into actions. Because again, a lie that's acted upon often makes the lie seem true. The action part is really important. And I think in conversations with people and kind of the trend, especially that my generation is going through, is we talk about the importance of the ideas and how we need to transform the mind. But actually, God does despise the action if it's sinful because it's not just an idea but the action is actually acted upon and the idea becomes an action. If you read the Bible and you can see that God can match anyone's sense of indignation against injustice. You know, injustice, it destroys and its wages are death. You know, if Jesus was willing to die in order to kill death, then I think God has got an issue with death. I've had a few people who've died recently in the last year who were close to me and it never ceases to amaze me how the human condition is made to perceive death as a thief, categorically. I don't think that should normalize. I think it is a thief because we're made in the image of God and God despises death as well. Um, you You don't need to be religious to believe that. You don't need to talk about this sort of context just in a religious Christian sort of context. We all know and want injustice out of our lives. You know, it's not Christians who are necessarily always leading the marches out on the street against injustices. Everybody understands it. Um, A healthy person isn't encouraged to stick around a toxic person if the toxic person has no desire to change. That's pretty common parlance, really. Despite all of this, even when God cast out Adam and Eve from Eden, he spoke with them and they spoke with him. Um, Cain and Abel actually were still in God's presence. Despite when even Cain um, was banished, he had a mark on him to protect him. 
God isn't the one who separates himself from his people. But he doesn't tolerate destructive behaviors born out of destructive mindsets because he doesn't tolerate death. Big point, and this is going to, um, you, you, I would recommend you go away and research some of this stuff yourself as well as God can be in the presence of sinners. Um, Jesus was, for one, that's a big point. Stuck around them all the time. It was his favorite company. <laughs> Didn't get angry at them. He got angry at the people who told him he couldn't hang out with them. Um, and if you think that God's holiness means that he can't be in the presence of sin, let me encourage you to read Psalm 22 and Habakkuk chapter 1. Um, Psalm 22. Oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> Psalm 22, yo. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's an inside joke. <laughs> um, the beginning oh God oh God why have you forsaken me makes you think oh, okay Jesus is actually like um, citing a psalm that's all about the separation of Jesus and the father of the cross read the whole psalm and you get to a point where it actually says that he does not abandon those who call on him and then it goes on to a whole series of how the son will be exalted. And then it says, uh, and, he, uh, and it was completed, which is also can be translated as, it is finished. Which is the last thing he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the beginning, and at the end, it is finished. He's making an account, and if you read it again, you'll see how it's an entire description of what's happening to Jesus there and then as well. Um, it's not a statement of separation. It's a statement that despite it looking like it's separation, it actually isn't. Habakkuk chapter one is, um, I think, where you know the father turned his face away, that line, the theological argument for that line comes from, because in it, it says that your eyes cannot perceive unrighteousness and sin, but it's Habakkuk having a moan at God in that section. It's not God speaking about himself. It's one of those, you know, in the Psalms where David goes like, oh, you, this is awful, why am I having a hard time? It's an earnest and honest emotive moment. But it's not a verse that gives us a definitive theological statement about the nature of God. Um, so Habakkuk chapter 1. Psalm 22. It's number 5 on the other page. <laughs> no, that's 3. We keep on coming back to 3, guys. Uh, that might be, because number three is important in this whole setup of the gospel. Okay, God doesn't separate himself, right? Um, he doesn't separate himself from his people. Not even sin can achieve <laughs> that. Marvelous. But, again, something had to be done. Because we were building hell for ourselves when we were supposed to be cultivating a garden. And it had to begin with our mindsets. And so God became a man. What a great way to convince humanity that God and man are not inherently and born to be separated by God becoming a man himself. In some mystical and incredible way, the human body has been designed to be able to host the totality of God. 
<laughs> you. Designed. Your DNA, your structure, everything about you has been meticulously designed so it can host the ever-present, the all-knowing, the omnipotent, omniscient God in his totality. <laughs> Jesus was not the messenger of God only. He was not part God. He was and is fully God. You can't ex extricate God from Jesus. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cross. You see, Jesus' ministry and his life convinces us that we are not separated from God. We're not designed to be separated from God and that God doesn't separate himself from us but that he lives amidst us and meets us where we're at. But that mindset change is one thing. It's another thing to deal with generations and hundreds of generations of destructive human behavior. Because can, you can change your mindset. That's easy. I say it's easy. It's not easy. Yeah. Go, go, go. Jesus can do that, and he does that miraculously. But sin, destructive behavior, has a consequence, and its wages are death. If I punch someone, they're going to get a bruise. Our relationship is now all of a sudden on, you know, not the healthiest grounds. And there's a whole world of different things that need to be dealt with. I somehow need to deal with the guilt and shame that's now inside of me because I punched someone. I need to feel like I'm still okay. Because if I just think I'm a horrible person who punches people, all I'm going to do is continue to punch people. I need, a, I need something to extricate me from the guilt and shame and condemnation that is driving me to death. And it's more than just a mindset shift to do that. You know, there's hundreds and generations of destructive actions from the greatest to the smallest. How do you undo all the pain, all the suffering, all the death, all the toxicity. And how do you deal with the repercussions of so many horrible things? Well, that magnificent being, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, everywhere, <laughs> flexes his muscles, sets himself up against evil, the devil, and death. And in the greatest seeming anticlimax of all history, dies himself. And then this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, <laughs> in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.13. 
Man is not separated from God. Not even sin could do that. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the evangelion, the thing that's been carrying so much of our good world for the last 2,000 years, not only can people be convinced of this, but beyond that, the havoc caused by our own destructive behaviors is undone. Nothing stands in the way of receiving love. (laughs) There's merely a change in the mindset now that is required. Mindset's a more modern way of putting it. Another way of calling that is for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 We are saved from hell by receiving love. (laughs) Which means we can love God, ourselves, and others. The very atmosphere of heaven that Moses' plaques were trying to provide. Beginning to unveil itself on this planet. There were three great floods in the Bible. The first was a void over which the spirit hovered and the waters covered the earth. The second was Noah's in which all of mankind bar a family died and out of which a new line was born. And the third is a flooding of the Spirit of God. So that all that His Spirit would cover all the earth. The Old Testament is really important to engage with because it gives us context for the new. But it is an impartial image. The flood is an impartial image of God because all humanity is going to be when the spirit of God is poured out all humanity does die but is raised again into a family that creates a new order the same as the previous one but just a more perfect image in um, Hebrews 12, 7, sorry, 11, 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Funny that, that flood condemned the world. Someone else who came not to condemn it, but to save it with a flood and a flood of his spirit. So what does that flood do? (laughs) Um, See, it's not, now your mindsets change and you understand that nothing is in the way 
of you and a loving relationship with God. Ooh, ah, that's my timer. Thank you very much, Phil. But that actually, he now wants to continue on with what his intention was all along, which is gardening with you. Like that one, Lydia, don't you? Um, (laughs) And so, this all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present epicenter of life and love and goodness wants to baptize you, drown you, flood you with himself. And to experience this drowning every single day of your life. So that you can become the being you are always meant to be. A glorious light on a hill that eradicates darkness and evil wherever it goes and replaces it with joy Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that heals the sick, raises the dead, cleanses lepers, casts out demons, the gifts of the spirits and the mandate of Jesus. It's not easy not comfortable there will be suffering and there will be trials it's a very successful marketing campaign that tries to convince you that there is a life without those things but it is a life that purges fear from you because it's for freedom that you've been set free (laughs) See, and Jesus doesn't verbalize all the answers that you have to life, and also does not verbalize all the answers that you might that the Bible provokes. He is the answer. The person. There is a living, breathing person who wants to have a relationship with you, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Not edicts, not theological ideas, though these are very helpful in shaping and forming and understanding this person, but it is the person of Jesus that is the answer. You don't need to wait for heaven. Salvation doesn't start when you die. It starts right now. And continues on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Because we go from glory to glory and deep cries out to deep, and his mercies on you every single day. You know, the prodigal's repentance, he was in a pigsty, eating food, and then his mind changed. He came to his senses. So there was first a mindset change. Cool, this is a stupid thing that I've done. Why am I eating pig's food? I've got a rich dad and I smell. Even servants in my dad's household do better than this. He's a nice guy. I mean, it'll be an awkward chat. I can figure out a way to maybe get him around my finger. Um, probably not going to like me very much, but you know, he's a dad and he, he'll, he, he might do what I need him to do. 
So I'll, 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 play, I'll play my cards right. I'll come up with a really good one-liner that'll get me into this household as a servant. So, stops eating his pig food. Maybe tries to clean himself up a little bit, look a bit more respectable. Um, and starts walking, taking the long march of shame, which if you know, you've, if you've ever <laughs> been around Glasgow on a Saturday morning, you might be familiar with it. Um, <laughs> and then you walks with the right mind and then is found as a father running towards him, breaks all social conduct, all social propriety, all things that is expected of that father, all traditions, swept aside because there's a dad who wants to connect with his son. So his mindset was changed to understand that resistance was a stupid lie. He didn't need to live with distance. He could live in the household. Simple. And then he was changed through an experience of acceptance. And that is the gospel. What time am I supposed to be finishing? Right about now? The funk's old brother? Check it out now. If this is news to you, which, you know, it's the good news after all, so, then we will have a ministry team up. And I would ask you to come forward and let them know and pray for you. Because a mindset change is cemented through an action. Um, so if you do have a mindset change and you're walking away from the pigsty and you're walking towards the household, you've got to walk towards the household. But you'll be amazed because even before you reach it, there'll be a father who comes running straight back to you. <laughs>